right, good morning. It's good to see you. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 4. Uh, James chapter 4, and as you're doing that, uh, I want to uh, draw our attention to something that, oh, there I am, draw our attention to something that everybody's aware of. Um, you know, as you've been watching the news and uh, the, what's going on in Ukraine right now, and I uh, want you to know that, uh, you know, in times like this, that there is a, a proper response from those uh, who are believers, from Christians, from the church. And uh, it's just uh, heartbreaking to see the images uh, on uh, the screens of our TVs or our devices. And I, I want you to know that as a church that uh, later today on our social media, we're going to post a prayer guide that uh, the International Mission Board put out that will help you pray through some things. And, and prayer is something that we ought to do. We also should remember, it's very important to remember this, because this is what is stirring the hearts of believers who are there in the middle of what's going on, is that Jesus is on his throne, uh, that we never lose our hope. Um, Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So even when there's brokenness and craziness within our world and injustice, we remember that God's on his throne and every act of injustice will be dealt with eventually. Every act of injustice will be dealt with eventually. Uh, but we certainly need to pray for those in the U Ukraine. Uh, that God will help you pray through things like uh, praying for the displaced families, uh, for government officials across the world uh, to make wise decisions, uh, to pray for churches. Right now we meet here in you know, you know, uh, a level of peace, right? Our Bible's open. We've been singing this morning. And there are Christians, there are believers on that side of the world in the middle of that mess. And we need to pray that they are... Uh, witness for Christ will be seen, um, that they will find their hope in Jesus Christ in dark days. And like has been the case through the history of the church, that when the world is at its darkest, that the church will shine the brightest. And so we need to lift them up in prayer. And again, there'll be a God for you later today. A lot going on in the world, a lot going on in our lives, a lot to be distracted by, a lot to be concerned about, a lot uh, to be on our minds and to burden our hearts. But I can't think of a better place for us to be this morning than to be here in God's Word together and to exalt Christ. And so that's what we're going to do through uh, being in His Word this morning. So we're going to jump right back into James. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And James has been teaching us through this series about authentic faith what it looks like to be a real deal, authentic disciple of Jesus Christ. And he's been showing us what that looks like, but really by showing us what doesn't belong in the life of an authentic believer. What isn't consistent with someone who truly possesses authentic faith. Things like partiality, things like not responding to the word of God, uh, just hearing it, uh, things like sinful words, uh, we looked at last week, you know, what uh, shouldn't be in the life of someone who claims to be a follower of Christ and could be an indication that you aren't an authentic follower of Christ. And that's someone who is living in the world's w wisdom and not God's wisdom, who's producing fruits of the world, world's wisdom and not God's. And so what James is showing us is that this is what an authentic believer, this is what authentic faith looks like, and this is what it doesn't look like. But some of these fruits, some of these wrong things can often creep back into our lives even after we've come to Christ, right? We still feel in our hearts a proneness to wander, and we know that. It's not, our dominate, it's not a dominating force anymore in our life, but it still can creep back in and cause issues. And what James is saying is he's not going to allow us, when that happens, to stay there. What he shows you is that's not who you are anymore. 
What James is saying is you can't move forward until you deal with these things. So he's not going to allow us to stay comfortable with the way he's going to put it this morning as a, as a friend of the world, when in fact, in Christ, you're genuinely a friend of God. And so he's going to push us forward in our discipleship. Uh, some of this isn't easy to hear as we've been walking through this. James gets up in your face. It's the bossiest book, maybe in all the Bible. Uh, but this is a word that cuts us to heal us. It's a word that doesn't just stab us and leave the knife in there and uh, for us to deal with. It's a surgeon's knife. And so some of this hurts. Some of this will make you say ouch more than it'll make you say amen. But it's good for us. And what James shows us this morning that when these things happen in our life, when things creep in, when there's a signs that we are more of a, a friend of the world, we should be a friend of God or living that way, that he shows us that there's a source to that problem. And then he's going to show us that there's a solution to that problem. And I'll go ahead and give it to you. He says the source of the problem is always right here in our hearts. And the solution to that problem is always, always the same. It's the grace of God. So stand with your Bibles open. James chapter 4, I begin to read in verse 1. It says, what quarrels or what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. There should have been some amens right there. But he gives more grace. One more time. He gives more grace. There we go. Third time's a charm. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then he kind of circles back. The section can be connected to the first couple verses. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray as we come together in your word this morning that your spirit would help us to hear it, not just hear it, but to understand it, to believe it, and to apply it in our lives. We ask these things in the powerful, precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, as you picked up on as we read through that um, just a moment ago, you know, James continues to hone in on what he's hit on over and over and over again in this book, and he's talking about relational problems. He's talking about fights and quarrels and spats and gossip and slander and jealousy and ugliness and backbiting and backstabbing and conflicts that happen. And what he's really focusing on is the church. All right. And I want you to realize this, that this is the this is the earliest letter in the New Testament. All right. So think about that. Think about the, what he's addressing, what he's focusing on. And the fact that this is the earliest letter. So we got this kind of romantic idea at times about the early church. Other people say, man, we just got to get back to the early church, man. Stripped down, pure, right? No distractions. Didn't have, focused, free of all the, the, the problems and, and conflicts and gripes and issues that you see in the church today. And you want to say, have you read your Bible? Right? Letters 
All over the place with exhortations after exhortation after exhortation where uh, these leaders are going, for the love of all that's good and decent, can you just get along? Can you stop fighting over small little things that don't matter? There are a lot of cool things that would have been amazing to see in the first century church. You think of the day of Pentecost. You think of the wildfire spread of the gospel across the Roman Empire. But listen, the early church was not without its problems. And every church since the early church has had its problems. And the question is why? Why is that? Because people are in the church. Because the church is made up of people. And we're sinners saved by grace. There is no perfect church. It's been said if you think there is one and you wind up there, it won't be perfect for long because you're there and you'll mess it up, right? I would mess it up because we're sinners saved by grace. Every Christian is a work in progress. Every church is a work in progress, but we want to make sure we're doing just that, that we're progressing, that we're growing, that we're experiencing more and more and more the transformative grace of God in our lives and in our church. Now, again, the the behavior that James, the worldly behavior James is focusing on and addressing is conflicts, conflicts in the church. But there is a wide range of worldliness, of, of being friends with the world, of of false fruits of wisdom, of, of different things in our life that would be considered worldliness and sin that this will help you with, that this will help, deal, help you deal with. Because what he's going to do, and we'll see it here, it's going to be divided up in two sections, is he's first going to show us that our problems stem from passions in the heart. He says, your problems, our problems stem from passions in the heart. James wants to immediately take us to the source of the problem. And he begins with a diagnostic question in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, he's asking this. He's saying, who do you blame for the conflicts that you're involved in right now? What are you, what's tempting you to tear down others with your words? What's the source of the sin issues that you're dealing with right now? What's the, what's the reason that your behavior isn't quite right? Why is there so much unrest in your family right now? Why do you tend to explode in anger so easily? Why do you speak so harshly to others, often people who are closest to you? And they would have been probably tempted, as we're probably tempted, as he sets this question up, to point the finger at someone else. They probably tempted like us to go, I mean, I can think of a few people. I, I got a little list I can give you. I can give you a list of some people who, who push me to the edge, who test my patience, who make me lose my cool. We all know the temptation to blame shift. Isn't that true? And that's not a new temptation. That's not a new thing. It begins in the Garden of Eden. You see Adam and Eve, they sin. And when God comes in, they says, what, what happened here? What, is, what does Adam do? She made me do it. Eve says that the snake made me do it, and today it's the kids made me do it. They made me lose my cool again this morning. My spouse made me do it. It's my unbearable boss's fault that I'm in so moody lately. It's my parents' fault that I got these issues. Ultimately, it's their fault that I got these issues in my life that I still haven't been able to get over all these years because of their failure to nurture me in in some kind of way. It's their fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's the government's fault. It's the pandemic's fault. And James says, nope, nope, you're wrong. It's my in-law's fault. James says, no, it's wrong. It's my spouse's fault. No, it's wrong, but you're getting warmer. And we point to our heart. And he says, bingo. Ultimately, there's an issue in your heart. He's not saying that people in our life can't make things more difficult or can't make things more stressful, that our kids can't make life just a tad more stressful sometimes. 
But the ultimate reason for the conflicts in your life, what he's saying, is found in your own heart. He says there, uh, next he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, the problems in your life, the conflict in your life, whatever form and whatever that's manifesting itself, the conflict in your life is because of a conflict inside of your life. The conflicts in your life are because of of a certain kind of conflict in your own heart. He says your passions. What is that conflict? Your passions are at war with you. Now that word passions there can be a little tricky, right? But many of you in the squint print of your Bibles, if you look down, it'll show you that passions there isn't, it's not really defined there in that original language the way that we would define it. It's really the word that you get for hedonism. He's talking about self-indulgent pleasures within us. We'll call those this morning unmet desires. There's unmet desires in the hearts of people who are living in worldly ways. And we'll kind of talk about that a little bit. That's what he's, he's lifting the hood up on our life and he's showing us that there's something wrong in our heart. He's making us think, why do you slander? What provokes you to anger? What provokes you and causes you to get ugly with other people and to lash out so quickly? Maybe to avoid people. Maybe that's the way you go. You're more of a cold shoulder person. Right? You get silent. You kind of give the silent treatment. What causes us to indulge in sin? What causes us to look at things that we shouldn't look? What causes us to commit immorality that's not consistent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? He's saying it stems from unmet desires in our heart. We're, we're hardwired with desires that we are seeking as human beings to, to meet. Desires that we want to be, that we want to be fulfilled. All right. These desires are desires here, some of them common to men, common to all of us. Uh, desires to feel safe, to feel loved, to feel respected, to feel desired. You have a desire to feel desired, to be included, to belong, to, to be recognized, to experience joy and satisfaction. And those desires that I just listed off there aren't in and of themselves bad, but they become very bad. They become very destructive when you seek to fulfill them and meet them outside of your relationship with Christ. When you look to people and relationships to fulfill those things. Listen, people are terrible saviors. They'll always let you down. And when you look to people to try to meet those needs, ultimately you'll be let down and you'll end up being led into worldly ways, dealing with people in worldly ways, lashing out to people, dealing with conflicts, dealing with problem, problems, walking in sin. Ultimately, those desires are meant to be met in Christ. James is saying, why do you lash out? Why are you ugly? Why are you be murderous with your words. He's not talking about actually murdering people. When you read that, you're like, when he said that, right? Some of you don't have what you want. You're murdering people. You're like, what in the world? Early church is like, wild, wild west. Like, he's got a car I want. Boom. No, it wasn't like that. He's going back and he's drawing on the words of Christ. It shows us when we speak words of hate, that comes from a murderous heart. It's a big deal. Why do you murder people with your hateful, judgmental words? Verse 2, he says, you desire and covet and you do not have. You have unmet desires. You're not looking for those to be met and fulfilled in Christ Jesus in a relationship with him. And it turns into problems. It turns into sin issues. Maybe it's you scrolling through social media, coveting, looking at a family, looking at a marriage, looking at something somebody else has, and you want that. And because you're not ultimately finding your contentment in Christ... 
You find yourself looking at that, wanting that, and then that leads you to being hateful with the way you talk towards somebody or judgmental towards the way you talk to somebody, or it can lead to you even being murderous in your speech in the way you talk towards somebody. You compare your behind-the-scenes footage to other people's highlight reels on social media, right? And I just want to make sure we're all aware that you know that those highlight reels you're comparing your life to, that's not real. Right? The perfect family you're comparing your family to, that little perfect family to, the little picture in the park, all their kids dressed in their perfect clothes, perfect smiles, perfect scenery, perfect family. That's not a perfect family. You know why? Because I've been in the park and taken those pictures. Right? I know it's not perfect. You know, it's, it looks perfect, but you know what's really going on? You want to you know? I've been there. I've taken those pictures before. You know what? want to know what I'm saying in that moment through my teeth to my kids? If y'all don't sit still, if y'all don't, we've, take, we've been out over two hours in 90 degrees sun. If you guys don't, I'm going to leave some of y'all at the park if you don't get your act together. <laughs> y'all are about to make me lose my overload. Y'all pulling your sister's hair. Get your finger out of your nose. Let's please take this picture so we can go home. You take 64 shots and you lay 64 filters over it and then you hashtag laid back Friday afternoons are the best. (laughs) Blessed and highly favored. Love my fam, best family ever. It's fake. It's fake news. But James is saying if we have these unmet desires that war within us, we're not finding our satisfaction in Christ in even the silliest of ways. It leads to coveting, which leads to getting envious, which leads to slanderous, ugly, judgmental words, which leads to a dangerous place. He takes us there in verses 11 through 12. won't spend a lot of time on that. But he shows us there in verses 11 and 12 when you begin to speak judgmental words that this is where your pride's taking you, that you're putting yourself above the very law of God. The royal law is what he's talking about here. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he basically said, if you could reduce it down to just a sentence, he said, love God with your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. The second part of the royal law, when you allow yourself to get to this place and let these unmet desires take you there, you're putting yourself above the very law of God. You're, turning, you're trying to turn yourself into the judge, and that's a bad place to be. It's not a battle you're going to win. win. He says you offend God, you create division in the church, and you create problems in your life. Church, listen to this, and I don't want you to ever forget this. Dig into this, think about this, meditate on this. Never forget what I'm about to say. So many of our sinful issues in our life are resolved in our life when in our heart we're truly seeking to be satisfied in Christ. So many issues, so many sinful issues in our life are resolved when in our heart we're truly seeking to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. When we don't, it always creates problems. He gives you a specific area where it creates problems in your life. You see what he says there? He says it creates prayer life problems in the life of a believer. The end of verse 2. He says, look, you have not because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We have this incredible gift called prayer. It's like lifeline, this prayer line that we have to the Heavenly Father as Christians that helps us walk in wisdom, that helps us learn how to, how to walk in the ways of God, how to not walk in the wisdom of this world, that helps empower us, that helps fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit. But what James is saying is we, we get so wrapped up in our pride and selfishness and sin and get into these patterns of trying to meet these desires in our heart in ungodly ways. He says one of two things happens. 
One, we either start trying to use prayer as this selfish tool that we use to get what we want, or we get so too spiritually big for our britches that we won't pray at all. He said, these are indications in your life that something's wrong with your heart. It's affecting your prayer life. It's affecting you. It's putting a kink in the that line where you experience power that connects to the very throne room of God in heaven. He's saying, hey, don't get me wrong. Some of y'all are asking stuff. He's saying some of you are praying as he's talking to this first century church, but you're not receiving anything. You're not receiving powerful answers to the prayers from God because your motives are wrong. Don't you know God can see your heart? God sees past that. Prayer, and he knows the motives of your heart, which is really what matters. He sees if you're asking wrongly to spend whatever you're asking for from him. He knows if you're wanting that so you can spend it on your own pleasures, your own desires, your own glory, your own will. What this may look for, maybe, man, you're praying for that promotion. You're praying for a promotion that will give you a bigger office, better hours, maybe more time at home, another zero added to the salary total that you bring home each year and you're praying for it, you desire it, but in your heart maybe, maybe that hasn't been answered, and could it be because in your heart when God looks there, He sees an unmet fleshly desire for you to get that promotion so that you can make more money for your own glory, for your own will, so that maybe you can get up to the next rung on the ladder that's over that sibling or over that friend that for years you've had some kind of toxic competition with in your life, and see, God sees that, and He goes, uh-uh, no. God's God's saying here, I'm not going to be some kind of cosmic bellhop in your life. I'm not going to be some kind of cosmic waiter where you kind of snap and go, hey, come here, here's my order, and I expect you to bring back exactly what I'm asking for when I'm asking for it. He says, no. He says, "I, I love you too much to allow that to happen. Maybe that's the reason why some of us aren't getting what we're asking for this morning. By the way, are we not grateful that God is that gracious to not give us everything that we ask for? How many of you are glad as you look back on your life that God did not answer yes to every one of your prayers? If not, just keep praying self-centered, dumb prayers, and you'll get there eventually with the rest of us. All right? Like the great unintentional theologian said, Garth Brooks, right? Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. He's not a real theologian. Anyway. We don't approach God as a genie. That's what James is saying right here. We approach him. Here it is. This is just a little snippet, uh, an understanding of what it means to pray biblically. We don't approach him as a genie in a bottle. We don't approach him as a cosmic waiter. We approach him as a father who knows best, a wise father who tells us what we need. We don't tell him what we think we need. It's not in us informing God what we need based on our unmet fleshly desires. Prayer is us listening to God, carefully listening to what He said to us in His Word, and then responding back to Him with what I see He says I need in His Word, praying that back to Him. God, that Your kingdom come. Your will be done, not mine. James is trying to help us see something here. The reason you're fighting so much, the reason why some of us are in a spiritually dry season. The reason why some of your prayer life is upside down, let me pause there and say this. Some of you are praying for something and God's not answering that prayer the way you're praying it. And that was not a blanket point that says every person that's praying and it's not being answered is because you're praying in a sinful way. That's not the case in every case. But for some of us, It may be the case. 
reason why prayer lives are upside down, why some of your lives, our lives, are filled with unbiblical prayers or unoffered prayers, is he saying this because our hearts, your hearts, have gotten entangled in worldly thinking and pride and trying to meet those unmet desires in worldly ways. You ready for this? Then James in verse 4 is like, all right, I haven't pulled punches with you up to this point, and I'm not going to start now. You ready? With everything I've just said, this is what he says to us. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Like, James, okay, tell us how you really feel, brother. All right, where did beloved brothers go? All right, I like that. I like that title for us. He'll come back to that. You know, it, here's the truth. Sometimes, believer, the Holy Spirit, this is why we walk through uh, these studies expositionally, verse by verse. It makes us deal with things sometimes that in our flesh we wouldn't deal with. And here's the truth. Sometimes the Holy Spirit has to get into our face in order for him to stir something in our hearts. James is getting into our face right here so he can get into our hearts. And look at verse 4. He does it here. He says, you adulterous people. He's saying this. When you're behaving and when your life, what I'm describing here, when that is your life, he says, don't you see what you're doing in your heart? You're not being faithful to God. That's what spiritually adultery, spiritual adultery means. You're being unfaithful to God, and it's a big deal. It's, we understand how big of a deal this is with the, with the analogy, with the illustration he's using here. It's like a man being unfaithful to his bride in marriage. He's reaching back to the Old Testament. This was a, an illustration, a picture that he uses over and over and over again in God's Word about his relationship with his people. It's referred to over and over and over again as a marriage. We're his bride. God's people are his bride. You see that with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And then we get in the New Testament, it continues to use that language that we're the bride of Christ. And it's a picture communicating the covenant relationship between God and his people and God's unfailing, unfailing faithful love for his bride. This is a really helpful illustration because no matter who you are, you understand that it's important for a spouse to be faithful to their spouse. We understand like the devotion in this like at a very basic level, right? If I went into a restaurant today with my wife and I said, sweetheart, Rebecca, babe, you sit down there. You go sit down at that table. I'm going to pay for your meal, but I don't want you to sit with me. I don't really want anybody to see you with me today. How's that going to go for me? I'm going to need somebody ought to help me up off the ground, right? <laughs> then on the way home, I, we're riding in the car. Hey, I want you to get in the back and just duck down. I don't want anybody seeing you riding around town with me. Like, she, she gonna kick, you're going to have to peel me up off the road. What if a couple of weeks ago, like I, or I think it was a couple of weeks ago, Valentine's Day, if I was to give her a card and it, she was to open up this nice hearts all over it card and there I have a handwritten note and said that says, Dear Rebecca, of all the women I love, I love you the most. <laughs> you know what y'all are going to need to do for me then? You're going to need to attend my funeral. It's going to happen, you know, later that week. We get this, right? The, the Bible calls us the bride of Christ, which means we've entered into a covenant relationship with a loving, ever-faithful, benevolent Father who calls us His bride. And James says, if that's true, think about what He's done to make that happen. Think about how He's demonstrated His love by sending His Son to die on the cross to reconcile you to Him. And those intimate, beautiful picture that He can use to show how special that relationship is and the covenant in it is marriage. He's saying, if that's true, 
what are you doing chasing other lovers? What are you doing chasing other gods? If in Him you have everything that you need, if in Him you have everything that you would ever want, He continues there, doesn't he? He says, do you not know that friendship, and I believe he's continuing to play on this idea, do you not know that friendship forging intimate relationships with the world is enmity, which means like waging war, hostility towards God? So he's bringing up the seriousness of this. He's calling out spiritual adulterers who are friends with the world. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons on worldliness growing up. Interesting sermons on worldliness. When he's talking about being friends with the world, we, uh, most of, we understand he's not talking about just like we're not supposed to be friends with people in the world. He's talking about with the world system, like being friends and being acquainted with and living aligned with the values of the world system. That's We talked about, I think, last week or the week before. It's demonic. But we've heard sermons about worldliness in church, right? And often it goes to like a few big things are focused on, right? Don't be worldly, right? Don't be worldly. And it's usually like, don't drink, smoke, or chew or run around with worldly girls who do. You know what I mean? Something like that. We hear things that are kind of railed against, right? Don't be worldly. Don't be dancing, right? Some of y'all are wondering, can Christians dance? You want to know that. Can Christians dance? And I'd say some can and some cannot. I've seen them try. <laughs> you know what I mean? We, you know, I'm not saying in all those sermons that everything that, were, that was focused on I'm not saying that it's not worldly and that it's not wrong, um, those things. But often we focus on, there's like five or six or seven things that are focused on. But look look how James is defining worldliness. You know what this, none of us escape this. He's shining a spotlight on our life that none of us can dodge. How is he defining worldliness? He says, here's what worldliness is. Here's the worldliness that he's defining as spiritual adultery. Prayerlessness. Self-centered prayers, relational conflict, coveting, sinful partiality, false wisdom, hearing the word and not doing it, looking for fulfillment in the world, injustice towards the poor. He gets into this in chapter 5, double-mindedness. And he says, if any of this is in your heart, it's not easy to hear. But he wants to, he wants to shake us. He wants to jolt us into obedience to the Lord. He says, this is spiritual adultery. And God is jealous over you. He's not going to tolerate any other rival. He won't let us go around, go around, you know, chasing other lovers in the world, chasing other gods. But here's the reality. All of us do. All of us do. You're kind of looking at me like you feel the way I felt as I was going through this passage this week. None of us escaped this. Although we've been given a new heart in Christ, we all still feel the passions and the desires of our flesh battling against those new desires of our new heart. Do we not? And the question is, what do we do? What do we do? We keep reading. Because the next line is one of the most beautiful, powerful, glorious lines in all the Bible. What do we do? We look at verse 6. But He gives more grace. Praise be to the God who gives more grace this morning. Our problems may stem from sinful passions, and certainly they do. But number two, spend a lot more time on the first one than I'm going to spend on the second one. Just hang with me. Solution. Our Savior provides the prescriptions that we need. Our problems may stem from the sinful passions in our heart, but our Savior provides the prescriptions that we need. He gives us more grace. Grace is what conquers the worldliness in our hearts. Grace is the unmerited favor of God that gives people 
who don't deserve it, His love and His grace and His favor. There is grace available for you this morning. It means if you have a need this morning, there's grace available to you. It means if you're carrying a hurt, if you're carrying a wound this morning, there's more grace available to you this morning. It means if you have a marriage that you feel is irreparable, beyond repair, there's more grace for you this morning. Maybe you wonder if there's ever going to be an inner peace that you'll experience in your life. And I want you to know it may be a process, but listen, there's more grace for you this morning to continue that path and to continue walk towards that. You say, well, I don't know if any of this could be for me because you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I've done. And there's no way, there's no way that grace, there's no way that like, true forgiveness, there's no way that God's love could be lavished on someone like me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how terribly and royally I've messed up or the things that I've done to other people. This can't be for me. And I'd say, nice try. But listen, it says it here and it's true. It's everlasting truth that nothing, that no one is beyond the reach of God's transformative grace this morning. There's more grace. First kind of grace you need is saving grace. Jesus died on the cross in your place. He bore your sins on himself. He says it is finished. He was buried in a barred tomb. He came up out of that grave alive, conquered the grave that we couldn't conquer. And he says, if anybody calls upon my name for salvation, I will save you. He will lavish his saving grace on your life. He'll raise you to new life. But I want you to know this, Christian, God's grace is more than him saving you from the penalty of sin. God's grace empowers us to live for his glory. You need grace. It's more than you need grace for more than just helping you not go to hell. You need it in your Christian life to transform you and to change you. It's all by his grace. He saved you by His grace, and He continues to change you. He continues to mold you. He continues to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ by His grace. But there's one condition. There's one condition if you're somebody who does not know Christ, and you never experience His saving grace. And there's one condition if you're somebody who is in a spiritual lull, spiritually spinning your tires, or you've got worldliness that's crept up in your heart, and you've made friends with the world. There's a condition. For you to experience His grace. And what is it? Verse 6. It's only for certain people. Humble people. If you want saving grace today, it requires humility. If you're saved and you want to walk in more grace this morning, it's going to continue to require humility. It says He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what he does is he lays out prescriptions. You say, well, how can... Okay, I hear what you're saying. But how can I humbly respond to God so that I can experience his grace powerfully in my life this morning, powerfully in my life this week? Well, he gives a kind of a five-fold prescription right here. First, he says, submit yourself to God. Verse 7. Are you submitted to God this morning? Are you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Or do you have one foot in your will and one foot in God? Uh, that word submit, mean, it's a word that, that means to put yourself under one's authority. Are you living under God's authority solely this morning and seeking to do that? Or are you trying to live under your own authority? Are you calling the shots, living under the world's authority? This means to live first and foremost under God's authority. You know what I found is helpful in moments where I'm seeking to pursue this kind of humility. Of submitting to God is actually at times, whether it's in a service, or even whether it's at my home, is actually taking a posture on my knees 
before God with open hands. You know that's important because that's not my natural posture. I tend to want to stand up proud, grasping the things that I want to grasp onto. And what he's saying is, listen, you want to walk in grace, you want to experience the power of God's transformative grace in your life, you've got to submit to God. Maybe that's helpful for somebody to actually physically take that position on your knees, hands open, not standing grasping the things of this world, the things of your own will, but knelt with hands open going, God, this marriage is yours. God, my life is yours. God, my kids are yours. God, my heart is yours. Your will be done, not mine. That's a prayer, right? That kind of prayer gets the kink out of the line. Now, somebody in particular is not going to like that. If some of you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you to a place of humility this morning, submitting to God, somebody's, there's someone that's not going to like that. And do you know who that is? Someone's going to try to convince you to stay on your feet. Somebody's going to try to convince you to stay in that more worldly, prideful posture. And James says, you're going to have to resist him. He says, submit yourself to God, and then second, resist the devil. You've got to remember, you still have an enemy. right? You've been saved eternally. The devil can't touch your soul, but he will do his best to wreck different things in your life. He will do his best to sideline you. He will do his best to make you ineffective. You still have an enemy that prowls. The enemy prowls this morning. He wants to destroy Christian homes. He wants to destroy Christian lives. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Be sober-minded, stay alert, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants to devour you. He wants to replant doubts in your mind about the goodness of God. He wants to make you convinced that God's some kind of cosmic killjoy. And I hope if you're a student this morning, especially if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're listening to me, that there is an enemy who wants you to doubt God's goodness and wants you to be convinced that he's a cosmic killjoy that's holding you back from experiencing real pleasure in the world. He wants you to be a friend of this world. He wants you to be discontent with what God gives you. And what James is saying here, this is very powerful, that in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you have a choice. You can listen to him, and that turns him into a bigger, more destructive lion in your life, or by God's grace, you can turn him into a stray cat. You know, what happens if you feed a stray cat? It comes around, right? It grows. What happens if you don't feed a stray cat? It goes away. It leaves. In Christ, you have the power to resist the devil. Listen, when you are tempted to go to that website, resist him. When you're tempted to lash out in anger at your kids or your spouse, resist. When you're tempted to stay jealous or bitter, resist. When you're tempted to doubt God's provision for your life, resist. And James gives you a promise right there. When that happens in a moment of faith, by the grace of God, he says he will flee. He'll be back. I promise he'll be back. This side of heaven, he'll be back. But in that moment, when you resist, it'll give you a moment to press on and to experience the grace of God in your life and experience growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Walking humbly involves submitting to God, resisting Satan's influence. And then look what he says. He says, draw near to God. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. The humble draw near to God and understand their need and the importance of drawing near to God. Why? Because being near to God is where your soul, those unmet desires, where your soul experiences the satisfaction, the restoration, the protection, the safety that our souls want and need. This illustration came to my mind that David often uses 
in the Old Testament that I think helps. It just came to mind as I was thinking about this drawing near to God. When David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, Lord is my shepherd. David knew something about that, right? He was a shepherd. And where does David put himself in that metaphor? Is he the shepherd? He is the sheep. He says, I'm the sheep. That's interesting. Out of all the animals in the animal kingdom that he could have used to represent himself, he picked a sheep. There's not a more defenseless animal, a more pitiful animal than a sheep. It can't protect itself. It's got no claws. It's got no sharp teeth, right? It just has this crazy laugh. That's all it's got. And like a big coat of wool. That's all a sheep's got. Like when they feel threatened, you know what a sheep does? Like most animals will fight or flight. They don't, sheep just fall over. That's all they do. It's just a big old sponge made of wool with little toothpick legs sticking out. That's what a sheep is. And David says, I'm a sheep. He says, you're a sheep. And he says, in moments where you think you're more than that, and in your pride you strut out in the open fields of this world, he said, you will be lunch. Ask David. He knows about that. A sheep without a shepherd is lunch. There is a lion that is prowling. Listen, but a sheep that is near a shepherd where it belongs experiences love and protection and satisfaction and is provided for. We have a perfect shepherd whose mighty hand underneath That mighty hand is where we belong. That's where those unmet desires are fulfilled. We're not seeking satisfaction as a sheep in our shepherd. It turns in to problems. In humility, he says, draw near. And when you draw near, there's another promise right here. It says, God will draw near to you. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Prodigal son. The prodigal son runs out, unmet desires, tries to meet those in the world, just rolls around in sin, literally ends up in a pig pen, rolling around in his own rebellion. Goes back home, has a speech prepared, isn't even able to get it out before he's wrapped up in the loving, merciful, gracious arms of his father. Mercy was at home waiting for him. Grace was at home waiting for him. For the moment that he showed humility to turn from those ways and to walk back into the arms of the father where he belongs. And it was available and it was ready. You draw near to God in humility and he'll draw near to you. He waits with open arms of mercy. Then he says in verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, cleanse your hands. There's adjustments we need to make in our life. There's choices we need to make. There's places where we need to make sure we don't go. There's things we need to make sure we don't do. But he says the answer is in that second part. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You need, listen, you need to get clean. A type of cleansing, an eternal cleansing that David, who again compares himself to a sheep, at times found himself out in the open fields of the world where he made choices that for the rest of his life he would feel the consequences of. And in Psalm 51, which was a psalm written after he had committed adultery and he had been responsible for murdering a man. What did he say he needed? Psalm 51. He said, God, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a new heart. Renew the right spirit within me. And you know what? David only cried out to him, of course, when he was confronted by Nathan, who helped him see the severity of his sin. See, the only way that we will cry out for this eternal cleansing this morning 
and ask God to wash our hearts clean is if we see the severity of our sin. In that next verse, it says, Mourn and be broken over your sin. Mourn and be broken over your sin. What that's not talking about is that the Christian life is a gloomy life where you're supposed to walk around sad all day because of your sin. Right? There, there's joy to be found in being a follower of Christ. Ecclesiastes talks about enjoying life. Like we should smile. We have something to smile about. We have something to laugh about. To be excited about. Ecclesiastes says there is a time to laugh, but he also says there's a time to weep. We're supposed to be joy, full of joy and enjoy life. But what James is saying, you're laughing at your sin. You're not taking it seriously. My dad gave me great advice early in my walk. He said, don't take yourself too seriously. But take your sin very seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. But take your walk with God very seriously. And this church had a casual view of their sin. And James says, you should be weeping over your sin. He says, it's interrupting your communion with God. It's leading to disaster. It's leading to disorder in your relationships. It's, it's, you're not experiencing the joy of the Lord right now. And the only pathway back to that, the only pathway back to peace, the only pathway to experience continuing to walk in restoration is in humility, repentance, and you will not be repentant in your heart without humility. And here's the result. Verse 10. If we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift us up. And I believe James is talking about a pattern of the Christian life. In due time, we will be exalted with Christ. I've said this a few times in this series. Praise God, there's going to come a day when this broken world that we live in and the brokenness that still lingers within our flesh, we will not have to deal with anymore. There is coming a day when we'll step out of this world and into an eternal existence with our Heavenly Father and we'll never have to repent of another sin. We'll never have to confess of sin again. We'll never have to ask forgiveness from somebody again. We'll never have to say, I'm sorry again. We'll never have to experience the, the brokenness of this world again. But between here and there, there's grace to carry us through. But walking in that grace requires humility. The authentic Christian life is marked by humility. Humble yourself. He's saying self-indulgent, coveters, quarrelers, murderers, wherever you're at, humble yourself because Jesus has grace to give you this morning. You say, well, the thing that I'm dealing with in my life, I'm just going to be honest with you, maybe some of it's my fault. Maybe 20% of it's my fault. But most of it ain't my fault. Have you humbled yourself to own that 20%? Have you humbled yourself before God? Submitted yourself to Him? Resisted the, the devil's temptation that you'll even feel this morning to not take this seriously? Drawn close to Him? Taking your sin seriously? And experience the grace that God has to offer? Let's bow our head and close our eyes this morning. I want you to listen carefully as James is showing us the stuff in our heart. It's not a pretty picture. But the solution he's given us is. 
The solution He's given us gives us grace and gives us life and gives us help. Hey, praise God for being a dispenser of mercy and of grace and of love on our lives. Praise God for our risen Savior who died on the cross for us. Praise God for the grace in our risen Savior that's greater than any sin in us. In this moment, our pride is going to tempt us to not deal with sin in our heart. None of us can escape this. The spotlight that James is, is shining down on our life, none of us can escape, including the man talking to you right now. So the question is, is if the Holy Spirit shows you things in your life that don't belong, ways in your life that have been more like the world than they are, things that are consistent with the kingdom of God, where do you go from here? Take the prescription that James is offering. Submit yourself to God. Humble yourself before Him. Draw close to Him. Take that sin seriously. Take it to Him and experience a brand new song in your heart this morning. Walking in His grace, walking in His goodness, walking in His mercy. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're someone who needs to experience the saving grace of God, I'll be down front. would love to pray for you this morning. would love to share with you a little bit more about what it means to receive Christ and step into a relationship with Him. It requires humility. For some of you, it may be standing up and coming down front to talk to me, talking to somebody that's near you. Even with that said, we're here to help you. Even with that said, in a few moments, you can just lift your own heart to the Lord. Admit your sin and humility. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that He rose again. Throw the full weight of your faith on Him. Believer, what's the Holy Spirit showing you you need to deal with? Let's deal with it this morning. May this place be filled with humility and simultaneously filled with the powerful grace of our God.